Welcome to The Entrepreneurs. Today on the show, we're bringing you highlights of a fascinating panel that took place here in London in the last week of January, before an audience including UAL students, brand leaders, investors, and other stakeholders. Devised and hosted by Bob Sheard, co-founder of the agency Fresh Britain, with contributions from Central St. Martins and Monocle, it was a discussion about brand Britain. In the frame was the meaning of that brand in the past, present and future, and what that has meant, means today, and will mean for those brands operating in its slipstream. We whetted your appetite on Eureka last week with a couple of snippets from the panel, but today we're taking a deeper dive. So settle in for some arresting insights, some inspired observations, one or two spiky exchanges, and plenty of powerful food for thought. In the room was an intriguing blend of brand energy, brand knowledge, brand enterprise and experience, and no little wisdom. So, what transpired? Well, stay tuned and you'll find out. This is The Entrepreneurs with me, Tom Edwards. Kicking off the session, Bob Sheard introduced everyone in the room. They then enjoyed a short film about what brand Britain is now, a playful way to set out some prompts and provocations to inform the discussion that followed. Then we met the panel, Fran Miller, CEO of Bell Staff, Simon Mottram, founder of Rafa, Annabelle Thomas, founder of whiskey brand Nicknayan, the writer and curator Echo Eschen, Monocle's editor, Josh Fennett, and Rebecca Wright, academic dean of Central St. Martins and the 2122 DNAD president. I began by asking the panel to place their own brand, their own work, in the context of Brand Britain. To what extent did they feel that this brand, this Britishness, was helpful or informed their work and their view of the world? Here's CSM's Rebecca Wright, first of all. One of the things that is characteristic of Central St Martins is it kind of defies easy characterization, And I think that includes how it relates to this notion of the British art school. So we benefit from being a British art school and coming from that great tradition. And we have a history which is rooted in Britishness, but our future and our present is kind of fiercely international and borderless. And I think there's a really interesting question about what it is that still makes us an attractive proposition. So obviously the work of our graduates and the network and the brand is powerful. But I think there is something about coming to London, coming to be part of a British creative education, which is still just famous for being a kind of disruptive, critical and challenging environment, which is not based around creating graduates who have a a particular style or approach. So it is based on a kind of a real celebration of diversity, I think. But I guess what is interesting to me is how every day has a challenge attached to it. So as I say, any kind of neat definition of what Britishness might mean, or even the brand of Central St. Martins, feels like it would be a disservice to the community. And the community and and the college is one and the same thing. And I guess the final thing that I would want to say is that it's a very challenging time for creative education in this country. And one of the things that feels really important, and I think the people in this room are probably indicative of that, is that 
it's hard not to feel optimistic about the future of Britain as a brand or a home for brands when you look at what the emerging talent and the, the, the new generations are bringing. And I think that actually that for us is why we get up in the morning. I think it's, you know, it's easy to be a champion for creativity and for creative education when you are working with great students. But I do think there's a really big question about what that means going forward and what are the things that cross boundaries? Where are the points where national identity or the sense of Britishness has a positive kind of magnet dimension to it for us and when it starts to become something which is an obstacle or something that we have to see beyond. Next, my Monocle colleague, Josh Fennett. It is a brand that has so much to do with Britain but is not really of Britain. A lot of our journalists are based here and I think we would struggle to do the work that we do and have done for the past 16 years to sell a product to 60 different countries around the world which tells an optimistic view about how to build cities, how to build brands, how to build a slightly nicer world, nudge by nudge, small improvement by small improvement. But we're based in London because there is a real talent here. There is and has historically been a melting pot of people from all over Europe and all over the world who have come here to get an education, to work with some of the brands that may even be in this room. And I think we're at an inflection point where all of the goodwill built up over years and by accident, we speak the same language as 17% of the world, that's good for a magazine in English. But is London the preeminent place to come and study? Will it always be if we don't continue to invest in it? I have some questions about that. So what I hope to do here today as a journalist is listen more than I talk to understand some of the nuances of these problems, but also to pose a question to everyone here what are the opportunities as we look forward? Because I'm sure we'll get into the weeds and the tangle of the things that we disagree about, the messy various identities that the UK throws up, whether it's being a Scottish whiskey distillery or being from London or being from the North, whether it's your accent, there are lots of complex identities. But I think the thing that we need to focus on in this discussion and more broadly is what we want the UK to be moving forward, what the best bits of cosmopolitanism, London, inward investment, good brands and great storytelling can do, because I think that's something that the UK has done consistently, sometimes against the decisions of government. Writer, critic and curator Echo Eschen was next. I come from a slightly unteleological position in regard to this, which is to say that the question about the notion that any thesis, any brand unfolds inexorably towards progress, towards the future in one unbroken line. I'm more interested in where complexity comes in. Let's say that. I'm more interested, I suppose, in the tellings of Britain that involve an acknowledgement that our identity as a nation has always been complex, has always been hybrid, has always been not neat, not straightforward, not linear. So I found it ironic. I swear, watching this film, whatever, land of hope and glory, playing Britain never shall be slaves, and so on and so on. All good, all fine, except that obviously the story of Britain is that at different points in its time, Britain as a nation has enslaved parts of the world has subjugated and dominated other parts of the world. This is part of the riches and wealth of this country and its history. From my perspective, this is not something to be afraid of. This is part of the story. I'm interested in how these stories, these complexities, these contradictions 
are told, not to the contradiction of a brand, but purely so we can get to potentially a richer, more interesting, sometimes stranger, sometimes more surprising place. I just came from the event this morning. I was part of a selection panel put together by the British Council to decide who's the next artist to represent Britain at the Venice Biennale. The Venice Biennale, every two years, most important art event in the world. It's a British pavilion, along with all the other national pavilions. So we selected an artist, an artist called John O'Comfrey, who will represent Britain in the next Venice. It's a fantastically interesting filmmaker and artist, makes deeply poetic films, which are all about embracing and exploring these long, complex, difficult histories of Britain and nation, belonging, empire, identity, place, collective memory, all of these things. These don't lead you to an aberrant place. These lead you to a place of potential poetry, potential artistry, creative richness, creative depth. It seems to me that we, in terms of having a conversation about who we are as a country, can afford to be bolder, can afford to tread in uncomfortable territory in order to bring back from that ways of seeing ourselves that offer potential powerful reflection, but also offer, as a consequence, roots towards stories, roots towards ways of seeing that have at their heart something real, something potentially poetic, something sometimes tragic, something that's moving, something that allows us to think, and then potentially, yes, to also connect, to see ourselves in you. Next, I asked Nick Nairn's Annabelle Thomas for her perspective. Well, I think Brand Britain is, we're a Scotch distillery, so Britain as a whole is not something that we identify with on a daily basis, and in some ways, the divisions and dichotomies within Brand Britain can cause us issues. So... We are a Scottish brand. We try not to be too much Scotch, but more Scottish. But we also benefit from what Scotland is perceived to be in the outside world. So we are positioning ourselves and are a modern Scottish brand. But the rest of the world still associates Scotland with tartan and kilts and haggis and all the rest of it. We both benefit from that, but also rally against it. And treading that line between the two is sometimes quite tricky. We have other dichotomies as well. I'm an English-sounding person running a Scottish brand. <laughs> we have a team in London. We have a team in Scotland. And whilst that's not a problem on the inside of McNean, from the outside, people say, oh, you live in London, <laughs> as if that is kind of a crime. But, you know, and you look at what's going on in Scotland, this divided within the country, some against England, some would like to be closer to England. That's a problem practically for Scotland as well. And that's something that we we struggle with. Next up was Simon Mottram of Rafa. I found the film extremely problematic, subjectively and objectively. Subjectively, it irritates the hell out of me, which is probably why Bob put it together <laughs> like that. And music's so powerful, isn't it? But all the words and the references and the music. Personally, I see nothing of my life and what I want my life to be in that stuff. But that's personal. Objectively, I thought it was quite interesting to be invited to something called Brand Britain because it's obviously a really bad brand at the moment that's struggling. And for Rafa, objectively, Rafa was never a British brand. 
from day one, my ambition was not to be a British brand. Not that we wanted to turn our back on Britain or anything like that. I am British and I live in London. But the opportunity was not to be a British brand of cycling. The opportunity was to be a brand that was cycling that happened to come from Britain. And I'd be exaggerating if I said, Rafa has nothing to do with Britain because I've worked with Team Sky, with Fran, and we only met because we were both in British cycling. And it was fantastic to find that so easy. But it also became problematic at times because Team Sky was much more proud of being British than we were. And it was playing to a very British audience, whereas more than 70% of Rafa's customers are outside the UK. And I want it to be 95% of Rafa's customers outside the UK. You know, the cycling market is not Britain. So from day one, I had no help from the UK government and I had no interest really in Britain. London definitely helped. Being in London, being surrounded by creative people and amazing media and wonderful design and architecture and everything else, and my network was amazing, but I have a real problem with Britain as anything to do with Rafa. And I'm sure people from Rafa here would probably not be surprised to hear that. And I think now it's not a bad, I feel a bit better about that because Britain really isn't helping many people. And I honestly believe it has so far to go that any attempt to gloss over it without getting to the fundamentals is a massive mistake. I don't even know if Britain is the right brand anyway. Bob Sheard spoke next, picking up on some of the themes the panel have set out in their opening remarks. When you fall into the slipstream of a national identity, it gives you a shorthand for meaning and awareness, if not in your own country, in international countries. One of the things I think, which I agree with with Echo, is we've got to own our imperfections. We've got to be open about them and own them. And I think as a brand, as Brand Britain, if you, any brand, if you strive for perfection, you'll command respect, you'll get there, but it doesn't let anybody in. And I think we should own our imperfections as a national brand. We should do something about them and we should own them in such a way that it shows our frailties and our vulnerabilities. And and in those ways, you can create a garden of creativity that creates new ideas, new thinking, new arts, new brands. And in owning imperfections and being vulnerable and expressing our frailties, we open ourselves to something much more powerful than respect, and that's love. People love imperfections. They respect perfection. So in a weird way, I agree with Echo. I really like the fact that Echo talked about contradictions because I think that contradiction runs through a lot of what we encounter every day and kind of collisions, and they're really creative because of that. And perhaps the fact that we have a monarchy and we have a history and a colonial history, a really problematic history, provides something to to kick against and to, to challenge. But I think it's more about for me, the fact that we've got a space as Central St. Martins and we create kind of community. And this is an overused phrase at the moment, but it is a kind of safe space. So it's a space to fail, to make mistakes, to kind of learn from each other. And it is a learning space. So increasingly as academics, we're learning as much from our students as they will learn from us. Often we would say more and students are learning from each other. And I think it's the contradictions in relation to somehow the construction of what our environment is. We are a product of hierarchy and and privilege and borders. It does allow us to articulate those, to declare those and then to question them. But I would say it feels constantly moving at the moment. Like I don't feel that 
education anymore. Higher education is an institution that has a, a kind of a set of coordinates that orientate you. It's quite the opposite. It feels like that's shifting permanently at the moment. And that's exciting, but it's quite frightening too. I mean, it's kind of energising would be the middle point, I guess. I think one of the ironies about the film is that to some extent, it could be made 10 years ago, 20, 50 years ago, in that it defined national identity in relation to power, status, hierarchy. I would suggest that one of the ways maybe many of us actually think about Britain is in fact through its people, through the generation and the creation of culture, imagination, Think about how much music historically means to you, indeed fashion, how much this means to you. One of the things I think is so interesting about Britain is that we've all been involved individually and collectively in making and remaking what this country is by virtue of, you know, the places we go, the music we listen to, the kind of clothes we wear. All of these things are actually part of a constant process of Rethinking, and in a way, one of the reasons why Britain feels in such a difficult place is because actually the people, the power structures, are the things that feel aberrant right now. They feel like the things that have hijacked, to some extent, some of the narratives and some of the possibilities which we've been engaged in individually and collectively throughout much of our lives in terms of being able to articulate why it is we choose to live in this country, we choose to do that because it offers us an opportunity to, to express ourselves professionally and creatively and artistically and so on. So actually, one of the things the film didn't pick up on is that actually there were conversations taking place all the time about who we are, about how we live. Some of those are straightened and difficult conversations, but they're different conversations to a sort of top-down hierarchical one that says, well, Britain is this or Britain is that, and now we've got whatever it is, it's a coronation coming up, all of these things. That doesn't, I would suggest, reflect some of the dynamism that actually remains in play just as soon as we step outside the doors of this building, as soon as we are in somewhere like CSM and so on. Monocle has an enduring interest in placemaking, in putting people at the heart of these questions. If we talk about what makes a great city to, to, to live in, it's less about these structures and institutions are more about something that is more human, more instinctive. That's very important when we talk or try to talk with authority at Monocle about what makes a great nation, a great city, a great place to, to live and work. I think it's very hard to make a compelling case that the monarchy is doing very much for the British brand. I think it's almost impossible to make the case that the government is doing a good case for the British brand. In fact, all of the equity, I would say, that we built up over the time we have built it up, whether that is the rule of law, caring about democracy, is kind of suffering death by a thousand cuts. The monarchy is a great example, a long-serving queen who said little enough for people to project their positive feelings onto, succeeded by a man who said too much, without the right really to say it, born into privilege. And I think that's a difficult conversation for the UK to sustain abroad as a right to speak. We all have a right to speak, but we all have a right to be heard. And I don't think the monarchy speaks for everyone in the UK, and nor should they, to echo, echo, not for the first time. I think, you know, there are so many things going on and there are so many different circles of identity that we move in. You might feel more like a Londoner than a Brit. You might feel more like you're from England than from the UK. And all of these things are okay and they're part of a distinct package. I think one thing that we could do to improve life 
would be to improve the way that we live, and that does really start in cities. That's the point at which you can make the biggest difference to people. And it starts by making our cities more livable, increasing the power of urbanism to help people have chance interactions. And as we sit here in King's Cross, we can see what that looks like. We can see what it's like to create a space where people mingle, where luxury brands can take one or two units, but you leave enough room for small independent companies to thrive. And I think when we look at the UK, it should look a little bit more like that. And just one other thing on brand, I think where and how we make things is something I'd like to introduce to the discussion and what we're talking about here. Doc Martin's venerable British brand, I don't believe British owned anymore. So many brands are similar and there's not a problem with that cosmopolitanism, but let's not pretend that they're British or that Britishness is what defines them. They're defined by being part of a global marketplace. And one thing we try and do at Monocle is have a proper debate about what it means to be from a country, but try and get away from some of the arguing about what it might mean in terms of party politics. Part of it is how you're seen abroad, and part of it is how we have a conversation about how we improve that. And that starts with reshoring, starts with better cities, and it starts with better conversations. Yeah, and I think we try to really have the best of both worlds. I am not particularly interested in aligning Nick Nian with a lot of the past kind of traditions of scotch yes we're part of a very traditional industry but i think that needs to move on and move forward and that's much of the reason i started nick Nian. but on the other hand we do benefit from saying we are a scotch whiskey distillery and that means something as soon as you go to let's say america so we i guess benefit from americans for example view of us and of scotland and of scotch whilst at the same time trying to define a new purpose for what Scotch could be. And I think this idea of purpose is something maybe we could explore a bit more because I think actually what Britain has been missing since the empire collapsed is a purpose. And maybe as a nation, we, you know, hundreds of years ago, we had quite a clear purpose and we don't anymore. But there's massive opportunity there, which I think our institutions may be failing to seize. But if you just think about climate change, for example, we could be a leader in that and we're not, but you know, everyone knows that if there is a common purpose, people can align around it. And at the moment, we haven't got any common purpose, I would argue. Simon, I, it, that's I, yeah. a really interesting point. And I wonder, is it in showing an understanding of purpose, it's not rhetoric, it has genuine consequence, and recognizing this sort of greater intentionality from consumers, that brands can be more reactive, can engage with their users, their customers better, and maybe that, recognising exactly that purpose, is going to be increasingly more important even than reflecting where the brand is from? Yeah, I think so. When I used to work in brand consulting, like Bob, 20 years ago, we used to define brand as a promise delivered. And both things were important. You had to have a clear promise or purpose or something that was manifest that you were promising to the audience. But you had to actually do it, and it had to be manifested through everything you did. Quite a simple concept, I suppose, and that promise today, I think, is so confused. And I think it's generationally very different. I suspect even the idea of brand Britain would conjure up completely different feelings amongst my children than amongst people in the first half of the audience, at least. And I think we have to come to terms with that. So I think we don't know what the promise is. We don't even know if it's Britain promising it or England or Westminster or London. And we don't know if it's these structures who are just deciding for us or whether it's something that's somewhat democratic. And then delivery, well, delivery has been shit, basically. You know, we've had 50 years of decline. And 
I called a few friends around the world because I thought you know, the best thing is to look outside. What do people think of us? Because we're obsessed with Radio 4 and you know our own backyard. The best quote I got was somebody in Austria who said that when he talks to all his Austrian friends, what they say about Britain is that it's, a, it's like a malfunctioning museum that doesn't want any visitors. <laughs> I mean, unless we start to own the fact that that's the truth, we have huge skills and we have huge resources and amazing potential, particularly amongst younger people. We've got loads of that, but until we start to realize that delivery is all over the place, then, then we've got no hope. I've never worked in an industry where you've produced a product that people buy. And I think, you know, when you work in a sports team, it's a performance that they're buying into and it's an idea and a concept and it's something very different. And this is a product there choosing to spend their money you become a choice you become a you know you're in a spectrum of all different available choices and it's like what's going to make them choose you and it's you know very quickly becomes apparent when you go into the industry that it's not just going to be about the design and the fabric and everything else it's it is that promise it's the what is it that we're doing differently and how are we doing it and how do we treat people and how do we treat the people we work with that preoccupies me probably more than anything else because I think it's such a sort of dark and woven web how you know fashion works and trying to get into that as an outsider and understand the supply chain and you know the complexities of brexit you know let's be honest brexit was i started in this industry in october 2020 so within three months was faced with brexit and it was like the level of you're thinking of a brand of our size with a very significant owner who could support us through the complexity of that but looking at the kind of wasteland that that left for young british companies trying to work out how to you know get their supply chains working and get their products overseas it was like how has the government allowed that to happen you know that that felt like i'd been let down by you know sort of a, the institutions that i trusted and i think yeah as somebody who runs a brand that has a hundred year heritage you have to think about that all the time in every single decision you make, in every, in every single element of the, the supply chain, the way you treat people, the value chain of the business. It has to be how you operate if you want to talk about being a purpose and consumer-led business, in my view. Next up, we turn things over to questions from the audience. First up, Roger Wade, founder of Box Fresh and Box Park, amongst other achievements, asked the panel about the current travails of Britain and its somewhat tarnished national brand, the government's failings and the needs, as he put it starkly, to save brand Britain. The panel had much to say. Bob Sheard, first of all. If you take civil rights policy in America, it wouldn't have happened without a civil rights movement. And that's people creating the space for politicians to move into. And so I think it's on us. I think it's on us as consumers and I think it's on us as brands to show the way, to show and create the space for brand Britain to move into. So you, you, you stick with this idea that the, the tools with which you can imagine, reimagine brands do offer the opportunity to address a problem even on the scale that we're just describing? Well, just like on even a bigger scale, you've got um, with climate change and COVID, 195 countries in a disintegrated way trying to manage problems that go across national borders. So as a, as a citizen of the world, I've got no democratic voice to um, assert to uh, try and affect the way I want to manage those issues. I've just got to hope 195 different prime ministers and presidents can get it right, and they don't. So our only choice in that situation is our only democratic act is how we spend our money. 
It's literally how we spend our money and the goods and services we spend our money on to try and affect the change we want to affect. So brands do become very important, as does culture in that. It's what we consume will create the change and can create the change, as well as protest, as well as a bit more revolutionary verve amongst the population. Can I talk about anger? Because actually, I think the anger is a really important thing to acknowledge as well. And when Brexit happened, there was immense anger and emotion at Central St. Martins. We're an incredibly international, and we were less so now, an incredibly European institution, and it felt really personal. And in fact, the news the next day had CSM students with their banners in front of the Houses of Parliament demonstrating. It was the first act was to go out and protest and be visual. But interestingly, it seems like the anger has kind of shifted over the last few years. And it has become maybe less about activism. I think it went from anger to activism to kind of action in a way which is not just responding to Brexit, but climate. And if you talk to the generations of students coming into university and education, for so many, that's the number one concern because they feel these generations that we are leaving a god almighty mess for them and that the work that they need to do and they are involved in it and there are graduates in this room particularly from a course ma material futures who are designing the materials that you will use and that will shape the world that you live in and that's about looking at single cell organisms and how they create new materials generate less waste how we can look at the relationship of kind of local in relation to global. And climate has been this really powerful way of kind of self-organising as a group of students and as a set of kind of creative education colleges, I think, because there's a common ambition and urgency. I think one of the struggles we have is that the perception of students is still that you as brands are less interested in that, that to be commercially viable, they need to, to tone that down a bit in so that the commercial seem is, is more palatable at this point, and then they disrupt from within. And I think there's a really big opportunity, talking of kind of creative education as one of the jewels in our crown, borrowing from the monarchy kind of terminology, but it's such an amazing part of our economy, the House of Lords produced their communications committee report a couple of weeks ago, which essentially said that this government does not recognise what the creative industries bring to this country. And it's failing our students and our school children through higher education because we're not bringing together the opportunities to learn creative skills in relation to science and technology. We're focusing on science and technology. And I think this is where brands, from my point of view, have an opportunity to link in really much more radical ways with education, but with schools, not just with universities, to kind of prove the value and the application. And, and you know, we're, we're good at that. If there is something that Britain can be really proud of, from my point of view, it's the tradition of education, which is kind of challenging, inventive and radical. I can see why people are disenfranchised and feel that like they have no power and we need fundamental reform of pretty much all the institutions that run this country. I think that seems more and more self-evident. But to leave politics out of it completely and to say that governments are all terrible and always will be is basically saying we can't organise ourselves to do this stuff properly. 
And I think that's completely wrong. I think the answer is to organize ourselves. And it needs to come from the ground up. And maybe it's consumers as well. I agree that brands have a role to play driven by consumers. But it might be more local. And that's where I think you start to get problems with Britain. Is, do we really expect the 67 million people in this country to come together to reform our institutions so they work perfectly for the Northern Irish and the Scots and the people in London who are here and the people in Yorkshire where I'm from? The last time Britain was designed was the Act of Union in, I think, 1707. So it's like 300 years ago. So call me radical. It's about time we did a little bit of a redesign. Echo, I know you wanted to jump in on something. I mean, the scholar and academic Paul Gilroy talks about, he has a phrase, talks about post-colonial melancholia. Britain's basically been in a hangover since the end of empire, hankering after this notion of purpose and being and so on. What I find interesting is that, to some extent, look, Brexit isn't the problem per se. It's like the end, it's like the staggered end point of exactly this long, ongoing kind of anxiety, trauma, exhaustion. I take some optimism, in a way, from the work. I, you know, I spend a lot of my time curating exhibitions, and so I look at the work of artists a lot. What I find so interesting is that probably for as long as we can talk about post-colonial melancholia, you've seen artists of all kinds actively thinking in really interesting, expansive, complicated, complex, sometimes inspiring in insightful ways about where we are, about who we are, about how we live. That's actually the function of art anyway, to you know, shine a mirror on society, all of these things, or shine a light within us. And in a way, some of these conversations feel a bit ossified. Like, we shouldn't just be coming to a point where we're asking where, about where Brand Britain is. Really, this is what we should have been, we might have been engaged in for a long time. And I take some heart from the fact that actually, if we look beyond, let's just say, I don't know, it's kind of narratives around branding, and we look at some of the ways different creative figures are actually interrogating being an identity, a nation. We, in fact, come to some really interesting, nuanced ways of telling stories about sharing and engaging with each other and about how we might be able to see ourselves. So in a way, I suppose I would encourage us to have a broader frame of reference when it comes to thinking and talking about what we mean in terms of Britain, because we can't just fixate on the arguments over the last few years because actually we've been trying to think through this for a much longer period of time. Josh, last word to you. Echo was talking about art and how artists can help us find new meaning. I also think there's interesting discussions about what it is to be a good country what it means to do the right thing. And that can be in international affairs and it can be in company practice. One of the people who came up with, or debatably came up with the idea of nation branding is a guy called Simon Anholt. He publishes this thing called the Good Country Index. And he doesn't decide which country's best. He picks the word good because he decides the country that is good-ist. The country that kills the fewest people abroad. The country that gives the most aid. The country that supports in peace talks. We have 25 different passports in the London office of the Monocle team. We've got six offices around the world. We've got 35 correspondents. We believe in a global point of view. But you can't just get angry and you can't just rebrand. It comes from the delicate, detailed work 
of just doing things better, of making decisions that make you good. There's no cheat, there's no fix, there's no rebrand, there's no new color palette that makes it okay. You have to pay your bills on time, you have to be a faithful partner, you have to employ people and treat them well, and you have to build cities that people want to move to and live in. You also have to create institutions that you know, lead the world and are benchmarks of creativity. So I think the anger is good, everyone felt that, but it's 2023, creativity is where this comes from, and doing the good thing, if not the right thing. Next up, we looked at another short film that set out some of the fault lines around the four interdependent nations of the UK and looked at how the English sub-brand might need fixing to better protect the parent. We continued by opening up the floor to more questions on the theme. It got, well, it was a robust conversation, yes, even a little spiky at times, like when we heard from this next Inquisitor. You might tell from my accent I am Northern Irish, now technically British, and there's a diversity of people on the panel. Effectively, you're all English. And you're talking, <laughs> effectively, effectively you're all English or Londoners speaking about Britain as if it's a central representation of one homogenous existence. Now, yes, you're Scottish and yes, you're Scottish. There's two Yorkshiremen on the panel. Yeah, no, but that's the point. The point is that this discussion is English, not British. When people in China that the Burberry consultant went and visited talked about Britain, they weren't thinking about Harlan and Wolf in Belfast, or they weren't thinking about Celtic Football Club, or they weren't thinking about PG Tips, or maybe they were. But this conversation seems to be very Anglo-London-centric more than anything else. I've got to give Fran the opportunity to reply. Fran Miller, a new description. Essentially English. Go on. Yeah, fucking hell. My mum would be horrified. (laughs) (laughs) I agree with you that England becomes, I think that video did a good job of it. It's like Britain is England. It's like it's not. There's so much more than that. And I think to the point that was made that Britishness has such inherent value, has long-standing, amazing, positive connotations when you go globally. And England doesn't. That's the reality. England, I think there is some real negativity around England, not just because I'm a Scot. You know, I think you talk about England and the St. George's flag, you start to see something very different to the Union Jack. And a lot of the, again, to reference sport, a lot of the English riders would choose the Union Jack over the St. George's flag, but the Scots and the Welsh would always have their national identity flags. And that's interesting as well. So, listen, I I agree with you. It's a London-centric conversation. I disagree. It's English-centric, but I think there is an inherent connection that people mistakenly make between brand Britain and brand England. And I think the two things are very different. I mean, look, I would question one of the premises of that film, which is that Britain, brand Britain, British identity begins and ends with these four nations or whatever, or at least begins and ends within the geographic borders of these islands. If we think about what, culturally speaking, has energized our national story, our sets of identity, our ways of thinking, so much of this is to do with the historic relationships that Britain has with, let's say, parts of Africa, the Caribbean, India, quote-unquote, Commonwealth, which is another way of thinking, again, about these legacies of empire. But how many conversations do you have with people who talk about their parents came here or their grandparents came here or, you know, they have family in different parts of the world? This is not an argument for global Britain, but it is to say that British identity is inherently widespread, inherently hybrid, 
inherently international. We can't think about Britain. We can't think about brand Britain. We can't think about the culture and identity of Britain without thinking beyond the borders of the country. To not do that leads us down some weird tunnel like argument about London, England, Britain. In fact, actually, again, I come back to this and you think about the music that has inspired you. You think about any other aspects of culture that have inspired you. Inevitably, this is to do with the hybrid nature of national identity. Just the one example, because we could choose infinite numbers of those. I'm just going to think for a moment about Soul to Soul. Everyone remembers we're old enough to remember Soul to Soul. Great group. What's going on there? We know all this story, you know. It's kind of uh, sound system culture. It's kind of international notion of Britain. It's ability to wed together music, sound systems, Caribbean culture, but also with a fashion sensibility, as was at the time that involved Japanese clothing and so on. This confidence that comes from an ability to say, I belong to more than one place simultaneously. And for that not to be a subtractive way of understanding, for that not to be an either or, London or England or Britain, but to be a both and, I belong to more than one place at the same time. This is what makes me who I am. This is what makes this country, for better and for worse, in all sorts of complicated ways, what it is. So I can't think of Britain and think of an island I think of an island in a network of associations that stretch across oceans into other countries, into other continents. Like I said, the history of that is problematic, but the potential for that, for what we take from that, for who we become out of that, I think is something that we can own for the better overall. We had a question next from Charles Williams of Concord Limited. Charles was one of several members of the audience who mentioned the specific challenge of reconciling not just those four independent but interdependent nations of the UK, but also the position of London in this complex mix. Bob Sheard picked up on this. I like the idea of thinking of a nation as a belief system and as a philosophy rather than a region or a geography, and I think that's a source of optimism when you think like that. But also... Pessimistically, half the Scottish population could vote for independence and that could lead to a breakup of the Union. So structurally, there are some pragmatic issues that could derail the optimism of having a national identity based on an idea, and an idea that actually, I was a Remainer, but Brexit was an act of independence and freedom. Now, that as a principle, as a belief system, could be a very powerful thing for the future of this brand Britain that we innovate and do everything we can do to create freedom around the world. So that could be a very powerful source of optimism. But I think it's rooted as well in we're a thousand years in the making and there are elements of trust in our judiciary. One of the reasons we didn't end up in a civil war was because of our constitution and it worked really, really well. But there is an issue and it's an issue with London. And if I watched the funeral and I was Scottish or Welsh or Northern Irish and if I watch the coronation, he's going to come out of an English parliament building, he's going to go into an English church, we're going to hear the English national anthem, and they won't play Land of My Fathers, and they won't play Flower of Scotland, and I'll feel completely disconnected to it. And so for me personally, it's slightly strategic because of nominative determinism, we're fresh Britain. And if it all breaks up, we've got to figure out a new name. 
just on a selfish thing, I think that one of the things you have to do if you're faced with a separation is you've got to tell the person that's thinking of leaving that you love them. And I don't think we do that. I don't think anyone tells Scotland, we love you. We want you to remain part of us. We love the fact that you're from us. We love the fact that we're from you. I want to feel pride when I hear Flower of Scotland. I don't want to fear sorrow. Same with Land of My Father. So I think we've got to start by telling that population that we love them and we want them to be part of us and then start to build from there. But I think part of the thing is London. We should just say it's not the capital of the United Kingdom, it's the capital of England. And then we should rotate the capitals around the nations so that they feel part of us and we feel part of them. Rishi Sunak should be the first minister of England. At the moment, it's just nuts. It's almost like England is the eldest child that has all the money but's not left home yet. And it needs to cut the umbilical cord and it will thrive. And the rest of them will thrive as well. We had another question about driving and advancing a collective approach to the challenge of redefining the British brand and indeed in taking collective action against those institutions that are perhaps letting the side down or failing to prove their fitness for purpose. This was something Annabel Thomas talked about. I think if you look back in history, the only way that people have really brought nations together with one collective purpose is against an enemy. So I don't think that's a very positive way to look at things. In fact, I was going to pick up on something, Echo, you said earlier, which was maybe embracing diversity could be a future. And I think actually, in spite of maybe being accused of being a bit London-centric, we've got lots of Northern Irish and Scots on the panel. And actually, maybe there is something in that. We have an amazingly diverse population in every direction. And I think we're doing an okay job of showing how we can progress on those issues. So maybe that could be something that we all rally around. I would agree with that. I think there's a positive tension in a lot of what's good about this country, however we describe this country. And it is that you have on one hand old institutions that I rail against, but on the other hand you've got punks. And you might argue that's held together because we have this monarchy, so don't worry because the king's going to look after us. But I think it's not that at all. I think it's to do with some sense of tolerance and freedom of thought. And if you have tolerance and freedom of thought, then you can embrace massive diversity of opinion, of race, of outlook. And if there's anything in this country that feels like a a thing that could start to hold it together a bit more, but I'm not massively optimistic. I think the answer might be much more local than that. I'm much more excited by what Andy Burnham's doing in Manchester or Andy Street's doing in Birmingham than I am by what the government's doing in the country. Next up from the audience, Andy Lipscomb, Director of Brand Strategy at Fresh Britain, jumped onto the mic. He had this to say. We're talking about fault lines geographically, and the video showed that. I'm very interested, Echo, in what you say about optimism and being able to embrace diversity. But I think the fault lines are demographic. I think that we have an extreme polarisation of those that revere the institutions that we evidently trust, and then there's those that are totally revisionist about them and want to deconstruct them. And I think they're on demographic lines. I think I have read over the new year that the millennial demographic is the first to not show a natural tendency towards conservatism. In later years, they're holding on to their liberalism. So if there's going to be a singular creative pitch, which is going to try and embrace a singular version of Britain externally or internally, how is it possibly going to unify what seems like a really visceral difference at the moment in terms of demographics and generations? Anyone want to jump in on that one? That's just what a country is. 
that's always been what a country is. I think you've got to go for youth. We teach people about brand pitch and product reach. If you get the brand pitch right around youth, it will have a product reach up. We owe it to our children to build and design a country that they and their children can thrive in. So the, it's got to be the pitch to them. Anyone that's sort of got any sense of familiar responsibility will then dive in as an older generation to do that. Just to add to that, I think there is room for a diversity of opinion in these discussions. Not everyone needs to think the same thing. They don't all need to be from the same place. What we need is institutions that allow some freedom of speech, allow some freedom of thought, and allow some difference to happen. Because if you look at studies, people actually broadly agree with each other more than they ever have before, even if they consume media, which feels more polarizing. I'll give an example in the US. The number of people who opposed mixed-race marriage, opposed certain equalities of pay, all of these people almost exactly agree today in a way that was inconceivable 20 or 30 years ago. So although there's a foam on top of the wave, there's anger about Brexit, there's disagreement about how funds are apportioned to different parts of the country, I do also think that in this room, if we wrote down everything we believed in, there would only be a few things at the top of the list about which we were completely opposed. And I think that's what we need to talk about. But there is a broad agreement, I think, in how people want to live. People want to live well, they want to be respected by the institutions that surround them, they want to have a safety net if they fall, and they want to be allowed to earn, as the gentleman mentioned here, if they so choose. So I think that we actually agree on more than we disagree on. I think that the demographic split is something we see, and one of the awful truths of teaching is that your students stay the same age but you get older so you start being really relevant and connected and then you realize that this gap grows and grows but actually that is the joy of it as well and there is a demographic split we see it we feel it in education but it's really positive in terms of a younger generation I think who are living in a way and are changing they're making the world they want to see I think that the bit where we still have a role is that difference is difficult. Like there's somehow a perception that diversity and inclusivity is just a natural order of things or that it's comfortable. It isn't, it's really hard. And actually the role of education as much as anything right now is brokering those discussions, is how you engender empathy and understanding and the skills to listen and not just to speak. And we've talked about that. And I think for me, one of the things that is important about the future I don't think, and some of the students here might beg to differ, but I don't think national identity is anywhere near the top of a list of kind of how someone would begin to describe themselves or their values or what's important. It wouldn't be near the top of how one would introduce yourself to somebody. They don't signify anything at that age group. And that's a brilliant thing, I think. Well, that next generation, that free of national identity model, was perhaps best encapsulated by one of their number, one of the best and brightest from Central St. Martins, Mayte, who put this view to the panel. I'm from Mexico, and the thing is that I'm actually like looking at the things that you're saying, very first world problems in a Mexican culture. For me... The identity that you're not seeing is what in third world countries we do see. Instantly, like if we go for whiskey, so for things like that, we instantly we think of the UK. So I don't know, for me, it lacks a little bit of touch. 
One other thing is very interesting, and it taps into this point which we touched upon in the beginning of the discussion, which was about maybe a clarity of vision about what Britain is or the face it turns to the world. Maybe there's a greater clarity on that without our borders. We keep talking about we shouldn't be constrained by those four. Do you think, Echo, that we miss a trick perhaps in not seeking the counsel of our global brothers and sisters a bit more and asking them what their fixes might be? I mean, always you try and have a an engagement. I'm sort of wary about a notion of national identity as a singular fixed thing that you kind of transmit. I'm interested in how we learn and how we continue adapting. Basically, yes, we can talk about things that endure over a thousand years, but I think we can also think about culture, we can also think about identity as something that requires exploration, that requires invention in the moment, in the era, in the time that we find ourselves, because if not, we just end up with a slight disturbing disconnect between the things we say and the ways we live and the things we believe. And I guess I'm all for trying to walk outside whichever building we're in and looking and listening to what people are doing doing to how they're communicating to how they're sharing to how they are connected and building a sense of self and i love this idea about what were the two values that you talked about there tolerance and freedom of thought potentially there are other values as well but i love i love this notion that these things are nothing to do with you know state institutions and so on and so on they're about how we carry ourselves as individuals as a society potentially as a people it may well be that other nations and so on find the same values and so on which is fine we have things in common but i think that part of the task i would say is actually there's a necessary searching i don't think this is a first world problem in that i can have similar conversations to this i'm actually thinking about a similar conversation i had with this with a number of art students in ghana where i was in the summer who were thinking very actively about the role of visual art for them because they were art students and about what that says about where they can be in the world that wasn't an obscure conversation for them because actually ghana's going through an art boom and there's a number of internationally successful and very wealthy right now young contemporary artists in Ghana so this isn't a nebulous conversation but it is to say that if you want to be able to have a stake and a say in the world and how it turns it's really good to be exploring who you are it's really good to be having these conversations not to take away from a thousand years of everything but just to say actually that if you want another thousand years it's also good to keep thinking and to keep talking and to keep scrutinizing who are we, how we live, what's important to us, what do we hold dear. Let's not tell ourselves stories as in the things that live about there. Let's actually communicate and engage and try and listen to each other and figure out where we are. I concluded the panel by asking each of the guests to quickly sum up some of their learnings from the session, starting with Bellstaff's Fran Miller. They are two completely different things. What do we want the inside of our culture and the way that we interact with each other and the interactivity between the various nations that make up the United Kingdom to be? But then what do we want to project to the world? I think actually that premise is a really interesting question. And I think as a, as a brand guardian, 
you know, what I do within my company and the culture that I create within my company is crucially important to me. But then what we project to the world as a British heritage brand is really important. But they are two slightly different things with two intrinsically different challenges. So from my perspective, I think I need to think about it more. If I'm honest, it's been a really interesting and challenging conversation. Rafa Simon Mottram was next. Brands are always a mixture of myth and reality. And there's a danger that we end up talking about the myths too much and perpetuating myths. And you can only do that for so long before the whole thing breaks. And it's actually very indulgent to something that has come up a couple of times to talk about you know, the, the myth and reputation of the UK when we're plainly failing. And I like Simon Anholt his analysis because it was based on some quite significant research with people across the world and this idea that being a good country is the right thing because you're outward looking it's what you contribute to the world and britain's gone from seven to 14 in the last 10 years so yeah just on that measure we've just got to sort ourselves out and start fixing the problems at home and so we can start looking outwards and not be so inward looking and completely myopic and obsessed with nostalgia. Annabelle, a closing thought perhaps from you. I I would say that internally we need to celebrate diversity and find some kind of renewed purpose. It could be addressing climate change, it could be, I don't know, there's lots of things it could be. But I think on the other hand we also need to recognise what's been played out, which is that we do have some amazing assets out there already and we shouldn't forget about them. Hopefully Scotch continues to be one of them. Uh, but, But there are other elements to that as well. And we shouldn't forget about them and feel proud of them as well. Echo, will you leave the room with a, a spring in your, in your sneakers? Or will you be, I don't know, somewhat pensive? Look, the thing is, let's not be afraid of difference. You know, we dress it up and call it diversity. But it is what this place actually always has been. This country, this nation, its history is based on, for better or for worse, in terms of domination or engagement, It's based on an engagement with the world and with different peoples of the world. This is what Britain is and has been. I think we tell ourselves a story if we retrench towards the hermetic, towards the homogeneous. We're actually more interesting than that as a nation. With all the contradictions that follow from that, the richness and possibility that comes from being honest and honouring the complexity of our cultural identities, I think is the thing that can help continue to define us and make us relevant and not slip further. I think we can tell and renew our national story by embracing our past in its multiplicities. And Monocle's Josh Fennett had this. Talking about difference is difficult and it's not something we do very often. And even in the pages of Monocle, what we try and do is try and find benchmarks of good things around the world. What we're not able to do is tell you exactly how that great bit of urbanism in Copenhagen or an interesting retail concept in the US fits into your city and your world. And that's actually for people in the room to sort out. The UK has so much to recommend it, and we've discussed some of the brands and some of the ideas. We're only hitting the surface. There's a lot that's good about the UK. But we've subsisted on complacency, on letting things slide, on value engineering everything. Look at the institutions that we should trust and then watch them fall apart because management consultants have pushed them to the brink of efficiency. 
We need to be subsisting, not just on things that are okay, but building things that are great, that are interesting, that engage with a wider conversation about who we are, as Echo said, but also a wider conversation about the world that we live in, all of the incredible things going on. We need to be attempting or aspiring to lead conversations with equal partners, not telling people what glamour looks like by pushing an old monarch out for the world to see. I, 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 don't, I don't consider that representative of me or uh, probably many people in the room, but I don't want to speak for you. The soft power opportunity for the UK is people speaking openly and honestly. Um, the gentleman at the front here mentioned the rule of law, uh, a fair judiciary. We're doing our best to chip away th that even. <laughs> we need to put our best foot forward, do the right thing as brands, as individuals, and hold the government to account to be, a, as Simon Anholt said, a good uh, country. We need to be doing more good in the world, and that's how to have better conversations about who we are and also how to tempt talent and make the UK a, a great place in uh, act as well as name. Fittingly, the last word to Rebecca Wright, who, of course, has a keen, perhaps the most keen eye on that bright future as Academic Dean of Central St Martins. I think I wanted to start by saying I did a disservice to the students earlier talking about national identity not necessarily being part of the, the, the kind of the primary way of describing themselves, ourselves. And I think what I actually meant, and I was just reflecting on this as the panellists were speaking, was that where you come from is not where you're going. And that's very much what Central St. Martins is about, that actually what constantly we get reminded of is that, of course, where you come from is an incredibly important part of who you are and the values that shape you and the experiences that you might work with or against. However, the amazing thing about education and creative education in somewhere like Central St. Martins is the focus is on where you take that and what you do with it. And I think one of the things that I'm left with, I'm always an optimist because if you're in design education, design is a fundamentally optimistic act and education is too. And I look at the students who are here and in Central St. Martins and I'm really confident they're gonna make a better world. What's been useful for me about today is reflecting on what it means to really think about where we come from, not because that defines where we're going, but because it's the launch pad for it. There's sure to be more to come from the panel. So many great conversations sparked and connections made in and around the event. So do listen out. To discover more and to find out how the many and varied stakeholders present that day and those who are continuing to engage afterwards react to the discussion and use the prompts and provocations to inform their decision-making going forward. But that is all for now. We'll be back at the same time next week. Do, as always, look out for Eureka coming your way every Friday. The Entrepreneurs was produced by Laura Kramer with mixing and editing by Jack Dewars. My thanks to them both as ever. And of course, thanks once again to Bob Sheard and all at Fresh Britain, to all our esteemed panellists, to the team at The Everyman who took such good care of us all, and to everyone behind the scenes. You can listen again and find out more about this programme at monocle.com. That's also where to go to subscribe to Monocle magazine. You can follow us and catch up with the archive at your preferred podcast platform. To contact the Entrepreneurs team, write to me or drop an email to laura at lrk at monocle.com. 
I'm Tom Edwards. Goodbye, and thanks for listening to The Entrepreneurs.